Hi, this is Kevin Grenade with the first installment of my series, Breaking Down Protocols. I was inspired to do this by Steve Gibson's How the Internet Works series on Security Now and Klaatu's Networking Basics series here on HPR. Not so much inspired that it could be done, but that it could be interesting. So what I'll be trying to do is describe different protocols and pretty much all the nitty-gritty detail except I'll at the same time be trying to describe why they do the different things they do, what the trade-offs they make, etc., um, to the best of my ability. So even though this is going to be very technical, I'm hoping that it'll be pretty accessible to everyone. In this episode, I'll be describing TFTP, Trivial File Transfer Protocol. Before getting to the technical details, I think the most important things are why would you want to use it? Well, Obviously, for a file transfer protocol, you need to transfer files. But why use TFTP instead of some other file transfer protocol? Well, it's that first word, trivial. It's very simple. Uh, it's very simple to implement. It takes up a very small memory footprint, etc. What it doesn't do is provide a lot of robustness, a lot of features, or a lot of speed. TFTP derives much of its simplicity from its assumptions about the underlying transport protocols, or rather, the lack of assumptions about the underlying transport protocols. All it requires are machine-level addressing, application-level addressing, and fixed-length packets. It was originally designed on top of UDP IP, which provide these, but it can be implemented on top of any other protocol that provides these features. Two protocols I'm aware of that make use of TFTP are PXE and ARINC 615A. PXE, sometimes called Pixie Boot, is a protocol that is used to bootstrap a computer off of the network. So you embed PXE, which includes TFTP and DHCP and UDP and IP, into the networking card itself, and it will query for a Pixie Boot server, give the network card an address, and then download files from the Pixie server over TFTP in order to bootstrap the system. So with a Linux system, it will download usually a kernel and a initial RAM disk file, and then it will bootstrap off those. TFTP is a really good match for this scenario because it's very simple and it only relies on UDP. DHCP also relies on UDP, so this has a synergy going where you don't have to implement one transport layer for one protocol and a different transport layer protocol for the other, not to mention UDP is very simple in the first place compared to, for example, TCP. ARINC 615A also uses TFTP to provide file transfer services. It's not a bootstrap protocol like PXE. It instead is used more for generic file transfer. It can be used to upload new firmware for remote targets, and it can also be used to retrieve configuration and log data from those targets. In this case, the various targets are actually avionics modules, and they generally have a very small embedded system on them. And in this case, the uh, simple implementation of TFTP is crucial because the resources on these systems are so constrained. The common thread between these two applications is that the resources available are very constrained 
and they're also secondary functions of the hardware that they're implemented on. In the case of PXE, the primary function is a, a network card, and the um, PXE booting system is an add-on feature. I mean, it's just a bullet point in most cases. In the case of ARINC 615A, it also doesn't have anything to do with what the module is actually supposed to be doing. Some of these are monitoring landing gear. Some of them are monitoring um, fuel tanks, things like that. And the uh, ability to upgrade them and retrieve data from them is really a secondary function. So you don't want to spend a lot of time on it. It's not their core competency, to so to say. The simplicity of TFTP and the simplicity of its requirements really shines here. A side note is that ARINC 615A is an example of a TFTP implementation that is not built on top of IPUDP. There's actually a special protocol called AFDX that is used on uh, aircraft, and uh, it fulfills all of the same requirements that UDP does, but due to the way that TFTP was designed, you can actually move it on top of another protocol. Now that I've talked a bit about what TFTP is good for, let's dive into how it's actually implemented. The first thing that you want to do is to open a connection to a TFTP server. So the client will uh, format a packet that requests a particular file. I'll go over the format of the packet later. And it will open a port locally with a random port number. It actually doesn't matter what it is. And it will then send that packet to port 69 of the target machine. This is what's called a well-known port. There's actually a registry, a global registry of well-known port numbers that are used and different protocols reserve certain ports, mostly in the zero to 1000 range for their sole use. HTTP, uh, for example, has port 80 reserved. Uh, it also has other ports reserved for secure communications, etc. But anyway, TFTP uses port 69. So you get your packet, you open a local port, and then you send your packet to port 69 on the remote machine. When it receives that packet, if everything's okay, it will then open its own random port and respond back to the port that you sent your packet from. So just for example, you open up port 1027 and send a packet to port 69, and then they will open port 3024 and send it back to port 1027 on your computer. So from then on, every message that gets sent back and forth will be addressed to that IP port pair. So on your computer, you're going to use your IP address and port 1000. 27 and on the server they're going to use um, their IP and um, whatever port I just said I actually forgot what it was but anyway so that's how you know which packets arriving at the computer are intended for that TFTP conversation an important point about this setup is that you can have one process running as the server on your computer listening to port 69 and what happens is every time it receives a request, it will actually spawn a new process that will finish the conversation. And what that means is that server will then be free to start more 
TFTP transactions by continuing to listen to port 69. So your, um, your server doesn't get bogged down with trying to start new sessions and handle those sessions at the same time. Now that we know how to start a TFTP file transfer, we can take a closer look at the layout of the packets. The first two bytes of each packet is a number that says what type of packet it is. And actually there's only five different packet types in normal TFTP. There is actually an additional one, but we'll be getting to that at the very end. The packet types are read request, write request, data, ACK, and error. The read request and write request packets are almost exactly the same. That is that initial message that you send from the client to port 69 on the server. If it's a read request, which means the opcode is one, you want to download a file from the server. If it's a write request, which has an opcode of two, it means you want to upload a file to the server. The rest of the message is just made of two strings, the first of which is the name of the file that the client wants to transfer, either as a read or a write. The second string indicates the transfer mode of the request. There are three default options for this, but one of them is not even used anymore. NetASCII indicates that the sender should transmit bytes as defined by the document USASIX 3.4-1968 and RFC 764. I'm not going to get into the details here, but it's a standard for data interchange between different CPU architectures. The most commonly used mode is octet. This indicates that the sender should transmit bytes in its native representation. This is less portable, but faster since no translation has to happen. It's up to the client to know whether it's safe to use octet mode. Mail mode was part of the original specification as a forwarding method for email, but email ended up being forwarded over more advanced protocols and it's deprecated for TFTP, just nobody does this. Um, clients and servers are also allowed to implement any additional modes that they want. So for example, they could have a UTF-8 mode, uh, but there is no guarantee that other TFTP clients or servers will support these additional modes. Um, so that's basically only going to be used within some kind of a closed system where uh, the implementer is in control of both the client and the server, and then they can do whatever they want. The rest of the packets are just as simple. Um, a data packet has an opcode of three, a two byte block number, and up to 512 bytes of payload. I'll explain what this means later. An ACK packet has an opcode of four and a two byte block number, which matches the two byte block number in the data packet. And then the last message is an error packet. It has an opcode of five, a two byte error code, and optionally a null terminated string that should be a human readable indication of what went wrong. TFTP defines seven error codes to cover the most common errors such as file not found, access violation, and disk full, and provides a catch-all error code for use when none of the common errors apply. The catch-all error code should be supplemented with an ASCII string indicating the cause of the error. Um, that string isn't necessary for the other errors. That's it for the packets themselves, what you might call the syntax of the protocol. 
Now we'll move on to what is called the control flow of the protocol, which is a set of rules for how these messages are used and what they mean. I've covered some of this already. For example, that a write or read request message is used to start a transfer. TFTP is what's called a lockstep protocol. This means that one side sends a message, then listens for a reply before sending the next message. This makes it very simple, but it has some drawbacks. Since only one packet is in flight on the network at a time, it's quite difficult to get very high throughput out of TFTP. And this only gets worse if the latency of the connection is high. In normal operation, each message has one other message that can be used to reply to it. A client starts a read by sending a read request, which is replied to with a data packet, which is in turn replied to with an ACK. Then the client and server alternate sending data and ACK packets until the transfer is done. You can think of a ping pong game or a uh, pendulum of a clock swinging back and forth. It just alternates. To write a file, the client first sends a write request, which is replied to with an ACK, which is replied to with the data packet, and so on. The exception to this rigid back and forth is the error packet, which can be used to reply to anything. This principle goes a long way towards making the implementation of the TFTP client or server simple, since there is only one message that they have to expect during the bulk of the transfer. Since TFTP is layered on top of UDP, which provides no delivery guarantees, TFTP has to handle retransmission itself. As you would expect, it does so in the simplest way possible. After sending a message, the sender starts a timeout and resends the message if the timeout expires. Since retransmission is happening, the packets have to be marked so the client and server can tell them apart. This is done with block counters. Each data and act packet has a block counter field. The first data packet has a field with the value of one. Each subsequent data packet has a field one higher, and each act has the same value as the data packet it is acknowledging. The exception is the act of a write request, which has a value of zero. There are three ways for a transfer to terminate, completing successfully, explicitly erroring out, and timing out. The successful end of the transfer is signaled by a short data packet. All data packets except for the last one have a 512 byte payload. The last data packet has either whatever is left of the data, or if the data was a multiple of 512 bytes, an empty data packet is sent. This lets the receiver know the transmission is done, but to let the sender know it was received, the receiver sends one last act. If either side encounters an error that renders them unable to complete the transaction, they can halt the transfer. They should send an error packet to let the other side know why. Reasons can include user intervention, no disk space, access violation, illegal operation, unknown TID, this one's special, and file exists. Systems are also always coming up with new and exciting ways to make an operation fail, like printer on fire. Regardless of the reason, if the side encountering the error is feeling nice, they can send an error so the other side isn't left hanging. This leads to the third failure mode, timeout. If the side encountering an error isn't feeling nice, or if the network connection is interrupted or power is cut, or if there are too many sunspots, one side will just stop responding and the other side should probably give up eventually, or at least ask the user what to do. 
All RFC 1350 says about this is timeouts must also be used to detect errors. Thanks, guys. A TFTP implementation will also retransmit the latest packet if it receives a duplicate of the latest packet received. So, for example, if it receives an ACK of block 5, it will send a data packet containing block 6. If it later receives another ACK with a block counter of 5, it assumes block 6 was lost and resends it. This can be faster than waiting for the sender's timeout to expire. This actually leads to a serious problem called the Sorcerer's Apprentice Syndrome. Imagine what will happen if a TFTP packet is delayed instead of lost. The sender will timeout and resend, and the receiver will get the same message twice. The receiver will reply to both messages, and then the original sender will get both replies and in turn reply to both of them. This can continue indefinitely, doubling the bandwidth used by the transfer. But even worse, it can happen again and again, which is the reason for calling the bug the Sorcerer's Apprentice Syndrome. The simple TFTP automaton just keeps mindlessly cloning itself, which could possibly bring down a network. The fix for this bug is simple, break the chain of retransmits. TFTP is required to not reply to duplicate ACK messages. In other words, it replies to the first ACK with the given block counter number, but ignores any subsequent ACKs with the same block counter number. This bug was originally addressed by RFC 1123, and later the main TFTP RFC was updated to contain the fix. That's the TFTP protocol as defined in RFC 1350. It works, but there are a few shortcomings of the protocol which have been addressed by later RFCs. First, the block size of 512 bytes keeps throughput quite low. Second, the receiver of a file can't determine if it has room for the file and can't give feedback to the user about progress since it doesn't know how big the file is. Third, there is no standard timeout period or any way to adjust it. The means used to address these shortcomings is called the TFTP option extension. During initialization, the client specifies options in its read or write request, and the server replies with a new message, the OAC, or option acknowledgement, which echoes the options back to the client. The transaction then continues as usual, but possibly modified by the options used. The format of the option extension is simple. Each option used adds two strings to the end of a read or write request. The first string identifies the type of option being requested. The second string provides a value associated with the option. An important point is that the extension method is backwards compatible with vanilla TFTP. A TFTP server that doesn't recognize options will just ignore the extra data at the end of the read or write request, and by replying with a data or ACK instead of an OAC packet, will signal to the client that it cannot or will not use options, and the transfer can proceed as usual. In order to be backwards compatible with servers that may only allocate a 512-byte buffer for receiving messages, read and write requests are limited to 512 bytes. The OAC packet contains just the opcode identifying it as an OAC, which is 6, and any options being acknowledged. Depending on the particular option, the value associated with that option may be different in the OAC than in the read or write request. 
One last adjustment to the protocol is the addition of a new error code that is used to indicate that a transfer should be terminated due to option negotiation. For example, if the server indicates that it cannot support an option and the client does not wish to continue the transmission unless the option is used. The block size option, spelled B-L-K-S-I-Z-E, allows the client to request that the file being transferred be broken into chunks that aren't 512 bytes in length. The valid range that can be requested is between 8 and 65,464 bytes inclusive. While it allows the client to request a block size smaller than 512 bytes, the usual goal of the block size option is to request a larger block size. Ideally, the block size will result in the largest packet that will not be fragmented by intervening routers, but selecting the block size to make this happen is left as an exercise for the implementer. A common choice is 1428, since this matches the MTU of Ethernet after accounting for the various packet headers, but it may be desirable to adjust this based on system design or even local network conditions. The server may echo a smaller value in its OAC, for example if it has statically sized buffers or special knowledge about the MTU. The timeout option allows the client to request a particular timeout duration before the server retransmits TFTP packets. The valid range is between 1 and 255 seconds inclusive. If the server is willing to accept this option, it must reply with an OAC containing a matching timeout value. Generally, the timeout duration should be slightly higher than the round trip time for a packet reaching its destination and the reply returning to the sender. Increasing the value is important if the link being used has a very high latency and decreasing the value can be helpful when the link being used is somewhat unreliable since retries will be attempted more quickly. The transfer size option, spelled T-S-I-Z-E, allows the client to provide or request the size of the file being transferred. In a write request, the client sets the transfer size option value to the length of the file in octets, which is echoed back by the server in an OAC. In a read request, the client sets the transfer size option value to zero, and the server sets the transfer size option in the OAC to the size of the requested file. This is primarily intended to allow the client or server to terminate the operation early if the file is too large, but it can also be used by the client to provide progress information to the user. There is one other issue related to the block counter, which is rollover. The block counter is a 2-byte unsigned integer, meaning the largest number it can represent is 65,536. The problem is that the TFTP protocol doesn't specify what should happen if the block counter value exceeds this number. It is very likely that most implementations will represent the block counter internally as a 16-bit unsigned integer and only modify this integer by incrementing it. If so, the counter will reset to zero after reaching its maximum value, and everything will work smoothly. However, if either implementation uses a different representation of the counter, they may disagree on what the current value for the block counter should be, and therefore be unable to transfer files with a size exceeding 65,536 blocks. Uh, that comes out to just a bit under 32 megabytes. So if you don't support rollover that's compatible with the other end, that's the size of file you'll be limited to.
a short note indicating that the block counter should roll over to zero upon reaching its maximum size would have prevented this problem and allowed the TFTP implementations to confidently transfer files of completely arbitrary sizes. But since 32 megabytes was seen as big enough when TFTP was originally written, this wasn't considered a problem. This is an example of how underspecifying a protocol can lead to problems in the future when unanticipated situations can arise. And there you have it, the TFTP protocol as I know it. Uh, while I was doing research for this podcast, I actually discovered an additional TFTP RFC, uh, RFC 2090 for TFTP multicast option. I'm not familiar with it and it looks somewhat complicated, so I'm going to be skipping that one. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone involved in producing HPR for providing this forum for audio casts. And with that, this is Kevin Grenade signing off and hoping to hear from you. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binref.com. All Binref projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.